Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, March 12th, 2017. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's called contamination control. And by definition, it's any method that effectively controls the growth and proliferation of contamination. Now, it's one of the most vital aspects of health and safety in areas where environmental sterility is of utmost importance. Uh, Contamination control encompasses policies, procedures, and equipment that ensure cleanliness by reducing or eliminating contamination. And you can find clean rooms in a variety of industries and settings. Medical, biological, pharmaceutical, automotive paint shops, kitchen and food preparation, packaging areas, electronic component assembly, probably even aerospace industry, I would imagine. It's may, it's not, may, it may not be possible to get rid of every contaminant, but for many organizations, this is imperative to their effectiveness. Even Disney has ventured into the area of contamination control, as seen uh, from the clip of this 2001 smash hit, Monsters, Inc. Let's watch. Due to copyright restrictions, we are unable to play the audio portion of this video clip. Mm. Well, welcome to the latest sermon in our Lenten sermon series entitled, Wanted, Dead or Alive, Why Jesus Made Enemies. And today we get another insight into why some in the group of religious leaders got so upset with Jesus. I think it'd be safe to say that the Pharisees, who were a portion of the religious leaders in Jesus' time, they were all about contamination control. And we're going to start with that first issue, contamination. Last week when we talked a little bit about the Pharisees, we noted that they they were not priests, but they were lay people that grew up studying and learning the law and then taught the scriptures to others. They were extremely focused on keeping the law, keeping the rules, the regulations, the ordinances of God. But then they also developed their own rules about the rules so that everyone would know precisely how to live out uh, what God had commanded through the scriptures. You see, the Pharisees believed that someday God would send his chosen one, the Messiah. And when the Messiah came, then God's kingdom would also finally come in the way that God intended. And this present world would be made new. Unfortunately, the reason why the Messiah hasn't come was because the world that we live in, we're stuck with contamination, otherwise known as sin. And as long as people kept uh, sinning and, and not following God's law, then God's kingdom would never come. So the Pharisees both resented and loathed those who persisted in their sinful ways, like drunkards, prostitutes, gluttons, tax collectors, and thieves. They long for one day, if, if God would, if the people would just keep every rule for one day, 24 hours, then God would send the Messiah. And as long as people continued in sin, that means they had to wait and wait until the Messiah came. Brian McLaren, in his book, The Secret Message of Jesus, Jesus writes, many of the Pharisees cherished their elite spiritual status, and they treated sinners with shame, exclusion, and contempt. Those who were sinful were deemed spiritually unclean. And there were many, many regulations about what made a person spiritually unclean. But this much was sure, that if you were unclean, whatever you touched, then that uncleanness was transferred to another person. It didn't matter if they had sinned or not. If you, as a sinner, touched another person, then they also would be spiritually unclean for a period of time. 
So you can see the tension that might be in the room in today's scripture reading from Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles or you want to grab the Red Pew Bible in the seat in front of you, I invite you to open up. We're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third gospel. You're probably about four-fifths of the way through the Bible. And we're going to be in chapter 7, picking up at verse 36. Ron started it for us. We'll read through that and continue. Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Starts simple enough, right? Jesus uh, accepts an invitation to dinner at the home of a Pharisee. We'll later come to know the Pharisee's name as Simon. Now, anyone who has been following Jesus in his early part of his ministry knows uh, that he isn't peculiar or particular with who he hangs out with. He will hang out with the elite or with uh, the nobodies of the world. And tonight, he's with the spiritual elite. Verse 37. And a woman in the city who was a sinner... Having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. Now, it may seem strange uh, that this uninvited, unnamed woman just barges into the dinner party. Uh, But many houses back in Jesus' day had this open courtyard. And and it it was not uncommon for bystanders to come into the courtyard. And they would even sometimes wander into the home. It wasn't considered trespassing. It was part of what happened. And so we don't know why this woman came, but she made it. And crashed their party that evening. Uh, the author tells us that she, two things. One, she was from the city. And second, that she was a sinner. Each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a story about a woman anointing Jesus' feet. And each one is told a little bit differently than the other. Some, one says it was Mary Magdalene who came. Others label the woman as a prostitute. But here in Luke's account, we don't have either of those Uh, insights. All we know is that she was a sinner. So there's this interesting scenario unfolding. Uh, There's this dinner party. There's at least three people, right? Two religious leaders, Jesus and the Pharisee, Simon, and one sinful woman. There may have been other people that were at the party as well. This unclean woman, a woman of the streets, a woman who, in the eyes of the Pharisees, did not fully observe the moral and ritualistic laws of Scripture. And we don't know what her particular sin was. Luke doesn't tell us. And in fact, it's not really that important. Suffice it to say that at some point in her life, her sin became public knowledge. And it became then her reputation. And everyone identified her because of that. So here she is, somehow or another, inside Simon's house, next to Jesus. Maybe she heard Jesus speak and and she wanted to know more. She wanted to, uh, maybe she was moved deeply by how he taught. Maybe she saw something that he did in the life of someone else and she wanted to be close to that. We don't know why, but we know she was there. Verse 38. She stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. But we discover later that the host, Simon the Pharisee, had actually failed to uh, offer the traditional signs of hospitality when Jesus came over. Foot washing, a welcoming kiss, anointing oil. Jesus will eventually praise this woman for what she's done. She fulfilled the hospitality uh, elements that Simon had neglected. Simon is quite bothered, however, not, not because of who this woman is, but also because of what she's doing to Jesus. Remember how I said earlier that uncleanness was considered to be transferred by touching. So so this woman, who is obviously unclean, by touching Jesus, was transferring her uncleanness to Jesus. 
She was defiling Jesus. Not only that, but uh, at that time, women were only allowed to let their hair down in the privacy of their own home with their husband. No one else should see women's hair down. And here she's doing both, that and touching and kissing his feet. Obviously, uh, this is a problem. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Simon's thinking, obviously, this Jesus isn't as divinely connected as some say he is because he's clueless about this woman. He doesn't realize she's defiling him. But just a few verses earlier, in verse 34 of the same chapter, Luke says this, that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's Luke's way of saying, no, Jesus knows exactly who and what she is, and he is okay with how this whole scenario is taking place. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Tony Campolo is an author, a pastor, and a college professor. I had a chance to hear him speak many times. He comes out to Hawaii uh, when I was serving there um, for 20 years of ministry, and he would do these conferences that I was a part of. And I've heard him tell this story numerous times. It's so powerful. He talks about a time he had come to Hawaii, and uh, his college is in eastern in Pennsylvania, and there's a six-hour time zone uh, between the east coast and Hawaii. So uh, anyone that travels to Hawaii from the east coast knows you may be in Hawaii, but your body is still on the east coast time, right? So if it's three in the morning in Hawaii, your body thinks it's 9 a.m. And Tony says, what I do when I first get up, I have breakfast. But there's not a lot of places that are open at 3 a.m. in Waikiki, uh, well, he found one this little, uh, on this little side street, a place that was open. Tony went in on this particular morning, took a seat at one of the stools at the counter, waiting to be served. He writes this. This is one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I mean, I didn't even touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened the thing, something gruesome would start crawling out. But hey, it was the only place I could find at 3.30. A large man behind the counter asked what he wanted. Um, just give me coffee and a donut, Tony said. So he poured the cup of coffee, and then he wiped his grimy hand on a smudged apron, reached out, and with his fingers grabbed the donut to serve to Tony. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Tony said he sat munching on his donut and sipping his coffee, 3.30 in the morning in Waikiki, when the doors swing wide open, and to his discomfort, eight or nine provocative and boisterous Ladies of the evening walked into that diner. It was a small place, and so they had basically the counter, and they sat on his right and on his left. Their talk, he said, was loud and crude, and Tony says he felt completely out of place. He was just about to get up and leave when the woman right next to him said to her friend, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Well, what do you want from me, said her friend? A birthday party? Is that what you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing you a happy birthday? Oh, come on, she said. Why, why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you that's all. You don't have to put me down. I mean, I, I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't, I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should it start now? As soon as he heard that, Tony knew what he needed to do. So he sat and waited until the women had left. And then he called the large guy behind the, behind the counter and asked uh, if these women come in every night. Yeah, he said. Well, the one that was sitting next to me, does she come in every night? Well, yes. Uh, that's Agnes. She comes in every night. But why do you want to know? 
Well, because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday. And so what do you think if, if we threw a birthday party for her? Like right here, like tomorrow morning in this very place. Well, this smile started creeping up across the chubby face of the guy behind the counter. And he said, that would be awesome. I would love that. I am totally in. And so he called his wife, who did the cooking uh, in the back room. And he said, hey, come on out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow is Agnes's birthday, and this guy wants to come in here, and with him, we throw a birthday party for her right here, like tomorrow morning. Well, his wife had come out from the back room, and she was all bright and smiley. Oh, she said, that would be amazing. I mean, you know Agnes. She's one of those people that is so nice and kind, and yet nobody ever does anything nice to her. Well, look, Tony said, if it's okay with you, I'll come back here tomorrow morning around 2.30, and I'll help decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. And Tony, which, uh, or Tony found out that Harry, the guy behind the counter, said, no, 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 let me do the cake. I will get the cake. I'll make it for her and bring it in. So 2.30 the next morning, Tony is right back in the same place, same diner. He had picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store. He'd made a big sign out of construction uh, cardboard, and it said, happy birthday, Agnes. And they strung it from one end to the other. It was a small place, so it didn't take that long. But it still looked amazing. The woman who did the cooking uh, must have gotten the word around on the street because he says by 3.15 in the morning, every prostitute in Honolulu was there in that diner. (laughs) Wall-to-wall prostitutes and Tony the preacher. (laughs) 3.30 in the morning, on cue, the door swung open. In comes Agnes and her friend. And then Tony says, one, two, three, and they all scream, happy birthday, Agnes. He writes... Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her by the arm to steady her. And as she was led to one of the stools along the counter, we all sang, Happy birthday to you. When they came to the end of the song, Agnes's eyes had moistened. But then when the cake came out with all the candles on it, she lost it. And she just started crying. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow them out, I'll blow them out for you. We're all hungry. Come on. And so after a few seconds, that's exactly what she did. And then he handed her the knife and said, cut the cake, Agnes. Cut the cake. We're ready. She looked down at the cake, and then without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, if it's all right with you, I mean, if it's okay, I kind of... Well, what I'm, what I'm trying to say, is it okay if I, if I keep the cake for a little while? Just a little while. And then, and he said, you know, that's, it's your cake. Agnes, it's your cake. You can take as long as you want. You can take it home if you want to. She said, really? I mean, I just live a few houses down. I would love to take it home and to show my mom. And then I'll bring it back and we can eat it. I promise. She got off the stool, she picked up her cake, and carrying it like it was the holy grail, she walked out of the diner that morning. Everyone just stood there, motionless and speechless. When the door closed, nobody said a word. And so Tony, feeling a little awkward, said, well, how about we pray together? (laughs) Tony writes, looking back on it now, it seems... More than a little strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But it just felt like the right thing to do. So I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God 
would be good to her. When the prayer was over, Harry leaned over the counter and said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And Tony says, You know, every once in a while, God gives you exactly the right words to say at exactly the right time. And this morning at 3.30 was one of those times. Tony said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) And Harry just looked at him for a moment and said, no, you don't. There is no such church like that. If there was a church like that, I would join that church. And Tony later said, wouldn't we all? Right? Wouldn't we all? That's exactly the kind of church that Jesus came to make. Friends, here at Palmdale United Methodist Church, we are inspired by Jesus to love, and that is exactly the kind of church that we are striving to build here as well. Back to our story from Luke. Uh, Jesus, the friend of sinners, tells Simon a little parable to help him get a new perspective on what's happening in his house that very night. Verse 41. A certain creditor had two debtors, he said. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. It's a very simple story. 50 denarii was about two months' pay. 500 denarii was about two years' pay. Both are significant debts. One was ten times the other. But, I mean, if you had to give up two months of salary, that's that's a lot of money, right? Let alone two years of your salary. Both are significant debts. Both debts are forgiven. Both debtors now owe the same amount, which is nothing. Right. Zero. The act of forgiveness have placed them on the same level. Now, which of them will love him more, Jesus asked. I suppose the one for whom he had canceled the greater debt, Simon answered. You see, it's not really about the amount that's the issue here. Both characters of the parable are now in the same exact place. They owe their creditor nothing. Not a single thing. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, from the time I came in, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. I think Jesus was trying to teach Simon a very important lesson here, that forgiveness is bound together with love and joy. Forgiveness is bound together with love and joy. It's not that he was less forgiven than the unnamed woman. It's just that he didn't recognize his need of forgiveness. Her love and joy, as evidenced by her actions, was overflowing in the room that evening. I think... Poor Simon continues to think about the situation as an us versus them, right? Us, the people that try to do the right thing, to live righteous, to live the lives that God would want versus them, the sinners, those that don't. Simon, as a Pharisee, had worked hard to keep the laws of Moses and Scripture because he wanted God's Messiah to come, and that was a good thing. But Jesus' parable teaches something different. 
It's not about us versus them. When you start thinking that way, you've missed the whole reason that Jesus came. It's about us and him. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all of us. And at the end of Jesus' parable, both debtors owe exactly the same thing, which is nothing. So that's where we are, friends. Our sins have been forgiven. Each and every one of us today stand in the same spot as the woman and as Simon the Pharisee. The question is, how will we respond? Will it be with overflowing joy and love? Or will we, like Simon the Pharisee, take offense at Jesus? Will we be shocked and disappointed that he's allowed himself to be contaminated by the sins of those we deem to be greater sinners than ourselves? You see, the honest truth is there's no no such thing as greater sinners, just insufficient joy. May we, this day and every day, find ourselves more and more in love with the one who came that we might have life in all of its abundance. He is our friend of sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all means all. But that doesn't dictate our response. May our lives reflect the joy that we were created to share. We are forgiven, each and every one of us. Thanks be to God. Amen.